0: You're listening to the audio-only version of Soundwriting Pedagogies. Visit ccdigitalpress.org soundwriting for the full webtext version of the book.
1: We both have long accepted that podcasting is a performative and sometimes productively irrational mode for engaging the worlds in which we act. Podcasts seemed an ideal genre to help us surface the kind of writing we want to promote in our first-year composition program, writing that responds to and works from 21st-century meaning-making practices. And that's just what we did. We trained and supported 28 graduate teaching assistants, GTAs, as they guided more than 1,800 first-year students through the process of writing and producing a podcast. It went well, and it didn't all of which we'll get to soon enough. What What we can't can't shake shake are two overarching notions that that emerged from from teaching
2: podcasting and teaching teaching new new teachers teachers how to teach teach podcasting. podcasting. Okay, so the first one. Of course the question, what counts as writing, is an increasingly stale question for many rhetoric and composition scholars. But the tensions that come along with that question are rather powerful and remain almost exclusively tethered to the mode of alphabetic text printed on the page. Second one, podcasting is much more visceral than we were ready for, and so it introduces a kind of productive vulnerability for which we're still learning to account. That is, what we learned from designing and teaching this assignment is that introducing podcasts into the program also meant introducing new, seemingly more fraught stakes for both teachers and students in first-year composition. So So in What what
1: Follows, follows, we trace trace both both student student and teacher teacher frustrations that showed up when they weren't able to simply transfer the literacy practices they know from English class to writing and teaching a podcast. We try and make some good sense of all the value-laden responses to what counts as writing in our composition program. And we try to complicate our own attachments to the comfort that comes from teaching and grading more common, more routine assignments. Assignments that our students can sometimes perform by rote and that our GTAs can already assume hold institutional value. And And we we grapple with the the kind kind of surprising visceral visceral responses responses
2: to the the vulnerability that recorded speech seems to require the feeling of exposure students experience when recording and then listening to their own voices. And the related vulnerability required of teachers teaching such a deeply embodied writing practice.
3: I was just white knuckling the whole idea, like, this is technology, And then, like, I think about the podcast, that's where I, because I it. was just like, implicit yeah. that yeah. this was a but class that was in, like, going to be WBE
4: dealing with struggle, writing like, in a <laughs> different <style laughs> way. I was really excited that. Which is, is amazing
1: for
5: me,
2: too.
1: I'm Jeremy Cushman.
2: I'm Shannon Kelly. And this is Recasting Writing, Voicing Bodies, podcasts across a writing program.
1: So before we launch into the specifics, let's back up a tiny bit. Why podcasts? Why land on such a difficult project for a large composition program?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a totally fair question. And the super quick version of how we got here is pretty simple. Both of us have been experimenting with rhetorical genres like podcasting in our other writing classes Mm -hmm. from first year level classes to senior seminars. Why we ultimately landed on this particular project though, really has to do with the ways it took our students and ourselves (laughs) away from our classroom comfort zones. Writing a story driven podcast feels weird inside such a standard GUR which gives us a chance to reflect on why that is and ask questions about what writing does. Likewise, and really importantly, the podcast connects up with values underlying the communication practices that Gregory Ulmer has been calling electricity.
1: Yep, and even the name podcast works as an example of what pushes us out of our comfort zones. Right. So in a couple of my classes where podcasting took center stage or was the focus of the entire class, mm-hmm. it was easy to call what we were making podcasts like most of the podcasts we might subscribe to on iTunes or Stitcher and the like, the students invented a large theme and then wrote and produced a few episodes about that As theme. You may know, we choose some That's theme basically how the genre works. Think This theme. American Life. But in our composition program, first year students are only making one standalone episode. No theme and no serialized episodes on that theme. One show. Mm-hmm. And that way, we could have called it an audio essay
2: It's just that the very word podcast becomes important for how the project supports the student learning. Yeah, What we learned from Student Reactions is that podcast is really defamiliarizing. Most students didn't know what a podcast was, (laughs) as opposed to audio essay, which pretty much indicates an essay read aloud, not unlike an audio book. And naming the project a podcast helps students compare what they were making with the podcast we were listening to in class.
1: Yeah, audio essay or audio composition, just carries overly familiar connotations. And like we'll get into later in this chapter, the word essay is already working on our consciousness before we sit down and begin writing. It can be difficult to approach the affordances of writing in audio when essay gets attached to the project. So, RGTA's top podcast.
2: Of course, apart from the word podcast, we grew increasingly curious about what composing in sound might do for students in a first year composition class how might working in sound expand their approach to writing? That's right. For us, podcasts are really a research genre, Mm -hmm. and writing and researching in the 21st century aren't necessarily tied to alphabetic text, or even to a thesis, really. So while we are doing lots in the class to prepare first-year students for research writing, We're also using the podcast project to help students encounter what we believe about contemporary communication practices, Hmm. which is that writing looks and works differently in different places.
1: So what podcasts can do is help students learn how to figure out the ways writing works in a given situation particularly in terms of writing and communicating meaning in multiple forms and overlapping modes. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the discomfort students might feel when presented with making a story-driven podcast instead of writing a more familiar thesis-driven essay or rhetorical analysis puts them in a position to engage the unfamiliar and ever-changing. Right. Put plainly, for us, this is more about learning to engage with unfamiliar rhetorical situations than it is about learning new software and creating fun digital compositions.
6: I am so nervous about doing a podcast. Okay, so I'm a little nervous about teaching a podcast in English 101.
4: Podcasts seem like this really kind of complex... A forceful medium of communication. Uh,
6: I'm just afraid that it's going to be nerve-wracking and uh, not intuitive.
4: When I first learned that I would be teaching a podcast, I was really, really excited. I love podcasts personally. Thinking about making uh, their own scripts and their own sounds. And not really
0: understand the purpose of them doing
4: this podcast. Um, That enthusiasm has been tempered slightly as I have found out that my students don't really know what a podcast is. And I know when I was learning how to make them, I felt kind of inadequate next to what I was listening to.
0: I was really excited. I like these types of media I was expecting for English 101 to teach me how to write a uh, essay that was very explanatory and college based so that I can go on to other classes and write. I wasn't really thinking that I wanted to focus on any other English class through my entire college career because I only really needed to know how to write an essay for like my acting class or whatever it is that I need to use an essay for. I think it was very somewhat parallel to a research paper because I had to get sources and and write from something that I knew was true. I couldn't just say something and use an assumption to back it up.
7: And some people have said, like, this doesn't seem college-like. When it comes to beginning writers, there's this weird idea that we have to sound really scholarly and not ourselves to earn, like if we're talking about it in a classroom setting, the grade that we want and try and get an A because I don't think anyone do
2: Maybe most importantly, this project just continues to teach us what we thought we already knew. Writing is an embodied activity that's impossible to pin down. It just means too much. And it entails a productive and difficult vulnerability.
1: Lots to say about vulnerability. But what we need to say right now is that the vulnerability we encountered from our GTAs, our students, and the vulnerability we experienced ourselves helped us recognize that this project grows out of and participates in electricity. Right. Electricity, Omer's word for whatever we could say is outside the realm of traditional notions of literacy, is about much more than digital speedy printing presses. Mm-hmm. For Omer, it's an apparatus for knowledge production that comes with its own set of values, entertainment, affect, play, and the body. With electricity, they all count as meaningful ways to understand huge notions like subjectivity, community, and representation. That's
2: what pushed us forward. That's right. Despite mm-hmm. our apprehension and our nerves, we decided to introduce the project because it helped align our program with methodologies and values that we glean from practices and definitions of electricity. Mm-hmm. We landed on the podcast project because we hoped. It taps into a kind of invention or meaning-making practice that lets students consider entertainment, affect, play, and the body as wildly important, even if none of us can capture and tease out just what it all means. We want something, at least slightly, other than literacy in our program. A story-driven podcast is where we turned.
1: So in this chapter, we talk to new GTAs as they learn to teach podcasts. And we try to demonstrate what composing in sound rather than merely with sound can offer students and GTAs working in a composition program. We'll also work from our GTAs pedagogical concerns regarding podcasts while questioning our own assessment practices and just what sound writing is really doing in our composition classrooms. It's not easy and it often feels risky, all of which we'll talk about. But what we've learned has proven more than compelling.
2: So I think what our TAs, and definitely our first-year students, made explicit for us is that what still matters is words on the page. Mm-hmm. Remember how we talked to our GTAs about the podcast?
1: Ah, uh, not really.
2: Well, we legitimated the writing of podcasts with the writing of the script. Yeah, okay. So the students were composing with sound, but really it was helping their alphabetic writing. hmm So, for example, in an explanation to our GTAs, we wrote. Creating a podcast demands a great deal of script writing, (laughs) i.e. text on a page, that not only gets students planning and writing essay-like explorations and arguments, it also gets them revising that writing. Yeah,
1: so we privilege words on a page.
2: Well, it's not done yet. Put simply, (laughs) writing on the page and audio recording that writing surfaces obvious problems with writing on the page. Mm. And in my 101 classroom, I said things like, you're writing a script, though to connect podcasts to the real work of writing. Yeah, me too. And here's the thing, approaching audio as if it's only in service to writing words on a page still seems to align with lots of dominant thinking in our field. And that kind of bothers me. Like in Cindy Self's historical look at the field on sound and writing, she says... You
1: mean um, the uh, movement of air, the breath of meaning? Yeah,
2: yeah. She writes that composition classrooms, and I quote, can provide a context not only for talking about different literacies, hmm. but also for practicing different literacies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So we both agree that like students can practice with sound and, and words on a page. They're different literacies.
2: I know, I know. Just keep listening, though. The practicing distinction matters for self in particular, because usually when multimodal works are included in composition classrooms, they act as cultural artifacts or texts that students study and critique, but not the kinds of works that students actually produce. Hmm. So I'm concerned about where we seem to land at the end of her article regarding the use of audio, which really seems to keep sound in service to words on a page.
1: Uh, yeah, but I mean,
2: well. It- Okay, so clearly in the 20th century, like her article's dealing with, orality took a backseat to writing, for sure. But has that actually changed? Yeah. Composing in audio is different than composing with audio in a script.
1: Okay, yeah, I think you're right. Alphabetic text printed on a page does certainly seem to take center stage, even in texts like Self's. That, I mean, she clearly wants to privilege something otherwise. Right. So like Self and she say, Why should writing teachers, and particularly, I'll add new GTAs, teach composing modes other than alphabetic texts and composing practices? Words on a page. They both write, and I'll quote too. Shouldn't we stick to teaching writing and let video production faculty teach video? Art and design faculty teach about visual images. Audio production faculty teach about sound. So again, you're right, mm-hmm. but Self knows you're right. Like in describing the longstanding constellation of forces that privilege words on a page above all other composing practices is the, and this is what she says, is that profession's ongoing bias toward print. A bias that has as much power now as it did when Patricia Dunn reminded us that it seems absurd to question an overemphasis on words in a discipline whose reason for being is, like no other discipline, for and about writing words on a page. Writing is all about words on the page.
2: Okay, yeah, we teach writing. But... As our communication technologies continue to move and morph, writing also gets implicated. Well, sure. So instead of saying we teach words on a page because that's the origin and the reason our field exists, it might actually be useful to tether our writing pedagogy to new communicative practices that potentially resist letting a dominant discourse's devotion to text on a page trump a diverse and different one.
1: Huh. I mean, yeah, I don't think Cindy is saying that. Well, we shouldn't- she's
2: not. But what I mean is that in teaching sound, Sound, visual images, video, text, etc. We provide students with broader rhetorical awareness of and a greater ability to choose various composing modalities. Yeah, that's right. So, in that history, she writes, though, that all of these modes continue to be in service of writing words on a page. Mm -hmm. And reading self actually makes me see the limitations in our own thinking about composing with sound the way that we legitimated sound, the way that we talk to our GTAs and our 101 students, the other modes are always used with usefulness for the page. Hmm. So when we do that, we don't actually represent a both and approach like self is arguing for. Alphabetic text writing remains what we do.
1: Okay, I can see where you're finding that in our approach for sure. I just think that in Cindy's history of sound and composition, she does try to distance herself from putting audio projects in the service of words on the page. It's it's nuanced. It's just that Cindy is trying to find a way to privilege a different mode of composition, but she has to account for that constellation of forces against her, you know what I mean?
2: Can we just call her?
1: Yeah, okay. Hi, Cindy.
2: Can you guys hear me? Yeah.
5: For those of you who may not
1: know, this is Cynthia Self. She's a distinguished professor at Ohio State University, and she spent most of her life focusing on the digital environment and its relationship to literacy.
8: See, a life is sweet.
2: Okay, so we've got a weird little argument going. and lots of retcomp thinking, and even in your article where you talk about the history of composition and sound, I'm concerned that audio seems to always be in service to alphabetic text in writing classrooms.
8: Okay. So
2: in our program here, we invented a podcasting project for our first-year writers, and what we really wanted to do was privilege audio as a kind of writing. Yes. But then I realized that the way that we explained it to our first-year students and to our graduate teaching instructors, was to say that in making a podcast, it was going to help the students' actual text-based writing. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. Yeah, and I mostly agree with Shannon, but it seems to me that you connect audio to alphabetic text because it feels like you have to. Our field is so committed to words on a page that it's impossible for you to even write an article without connecting audio to alphabetic text, right? (laughs) So our disagreement is pretty nuanced, but it feels important because we're feeling a lot of tension from our GTAs and even our first-year students.
8: Yeah, I I sort of think you're both right, though, I have to say, Um, and (laughs) I'll tell you why I say that. First of all... um, no one misses the irony of an article about uh, sound that's presented in writing, right? I mean, that that uh, points to the fact that uh, we're privileging the alphabetic print essay and the fact that um, three C's couldn't, uh, there was no other... Um, Way that they could represent that piece, except as an alphabetic print essay. And in fact, the audio uh, essays attached to that essay uh, could only be included because I've kept them up in various websites over the years. So um, I think in some senses, uh, the piece is a captive of print, But at the same time, Jeremy, I think you're right in that um, what I was trying to say was that the privileging of alphabetic print uh, really is built into our consciousness, our professional consciousness, and that we don't have to let it be so. I mean, it's a Print is like a little machine that keeps replicating uh-huh. the, the effects over and over and over and over and over again.
2: Yeah, that makes sense.
8: You know, I think you're right in that respect. But then there's a third respect, I guess, and that has to do with the, um, I don't know, I guess the systematicity of... First-year composition,
1: All right. uh,
8: or composition programs, and how most programs feel that they're caught in this um, in an expectations game, both within the university and in terms of parents and uh, employers and community, et cetera, et cetera, and they feel that uh, having um, Too much emphasis on something like uh, audio might jeopardize Mm -hmm. um, the endeavor that gives them value in the eyes of the university, in the eyes of the community, in the eyes of uh, the culture. So. I think everybody's right. Um, well,
2: yeah. The reason we wrote to our graduate teaching instructors to help them think about teaching podcasting in terms of writing was because of the resistance they were getting from their students. A lot of the first-year students didn't want to do the project, even <laughs> though they thought it was fun.
8: Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, students students are not dupes. They're not... Um, they know what is considered uh, the intellectual work of the academy and they know the privileged position of print and they know that what they're paying for in terms of their tuition dollars is some facility with the privileged modality intellectual modality of uh, the academy which is print that's right so you know i i don't blame them i guess
1: I mean, Cindy, isn't it crazy that we're still having this conversation about what counts as writing? feels like people have been defensive forever. You know, like in, in 93, I remember Erica Lindemann said that the teaching of composition should offer students guidance and practice in the discourses of the academy and the professions, I mean, i.e., written discourses. Remember, when she said we have particularly should do that because we drag every freshman through the course. And then, like, somewhere around 2004, Uh, Tabo, you know, shared similar sentiments about the responsibility writing pedagogy should take up in technical writing, which is more often tethered to new communication technologies. I remember she said we should ignore whatever rhetorical theory is currently in vogue and focus on practical instruction.
5: Right. Such as
1: organizing effective written arguments and proposals so as to prepare graduates for careers. So it's crazy to me we're still having the same conversation. Oh, no.
8: Nah. Nah, it's not crazy. I mean, I, I just think that it's, um, it's, it's an indication of how potent the ideology surrounding print is. Um, not, I mean, you know, if people, once, once you start talking about this and show them examples, people sort of, they snap to it, but... You know it takes a while. and it and they have to believe that you're uh, trying to act in their best interests. Um, and that, I think, takes some discussion and trust and
2: And what's surfacing here, too, is an evaluation about usefulness, which is incredibly important when considering how we equip our students in an increasingly networked and deeply mediated world like ours. And, like Cindy, like you're saying, the value behind this judgment is tied to a belief that written text on a page is still the primary or most useful way of
8: communicating. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why is it that in composition classrooms, we can't bring ourselves to talk about anything but print, composition so um, to me it's the inclusion of the audio essay that allows us to um, break out of that mental box and that um, gives us an opportunity to uh, engage students um, in another modality that might better suit their gifts or their talents or their interests and certainly expands their way of understanding what composition can be. Now, if that, is, I think the, the mark of how difficult a move that is, is the amount of fear and resistance that you get in return uh, from suggesting an assignment like that.
1: So the difficulty sending names might have to do with the tension that comes about when students can't rely solely on literacy practices for English class, even when they don't necessarily know what those literacy practices are. They just feel the tension.
2: Yeah, composing in audio then might both help students think across what they already know from English class and also acquire new ways into engaging and producing knowledge. Mm -hmm. alone though in teaching podcasts and first year composition with the exception of jeremy and me gtas are the only people who teach our first year writing course
1: and many of the gtas in our ma mfa english studies program expect and even hope to teach the writing and reading practices they themselves are familiar with the practices that turn them on to graduate work in the first place they hope to teach close reading and analytic writing fair enough what introducing all these really brand new instructors to a production-based writing course with an emphasis on workshop and writing as doing did, it turns out, was disrupt any hope for control, for mastery over the material they expect to teach in an English department. And lacking control as a teacher can compound the already strange dual identity RGTAs feel in being both students and brand new teachers.
5: It's really hard for me to work learning with the students rather than I know something and I'm teaching them so
9: that's something pedagogically I think that's difficult for me and with with podcasting am I gonna have to teach them how to use technology I'm like the most technologically behind 20-something in the world (laughs) I was like this is not gonna go well for me but um yeah I was really apprehensive about it I thought it was gonna be awful
3: so that's why I think it it works well it might be uncomfortable but Welcome to college.
8: Yeah, I was scared when I first learned I would be teaching a podcast because I knew, like, fuck all about podcasts. <laughs> but um, but I found that was kind of an advantage, actually, because I also didn't have a preconceived notion of exactly what a good podcast mm-hmm. should
5: look like. There's always going to be some students who know more than I do in the class, and that's scary for me. Mm-hmm. Same.
7: It's it's new to all of us. It's a beginning kind of discipline, so I think we all were very new to it.
5: I would say one thing I liked, and I don't know if I would call this, I guess it's kind of pedagogical, is that one thing I struggle with all the time is I'm very much like an error corrector. So when I read students' papers, I'm like, oh, mm. you spelled that wrong. You missed a comma there. So I liked in the po- like reading the podcasting script. I could just look at their ideas because I knew that wasn't going to be a published piece. I knew mm. that what was actually going to be published for them was The Voice.
2: Often as new teachers, there's an expectation that the first quarter or semester at the front of the classroom will be difficult but doable. Like Jessica Restaino puts it, there's a belief that with drive and perseverance, new GTAs can come up for air eventually. And that in the midst of being beginners in their own graduate work, that at least they know how to teach freshmen some good reading strategies and how to write an effective essay. In lots of cases, though, our GTAs are learning to be teachers at the same time that they're teaching their first classes, like most graduate students in this field. Rustano reminds us importantly, though, there's a fundamental level at which the new teacher must simply strive to create a legitimate class, one that students buy into, that actually runs from the beginning of the semester to the end. GTAs, at the very least, can hope for that. Yet our podcast assignment in varying degrees sometimes undercuts that hope. But again, we see an opportunity in our program to intervene in what Sarah Arroyo has called the coming rhetoric for the electorate apparatus. So we moved forward with our GTAs.
4: Once we're getting into these elements of what goes into a podcast, they're all so confused when we start that they have to rely
9: on each other to create knowledge. I feel like the learning happens almost in spite of themselves in moments where they don't realize that they're learning um, because they tend to come into the class thinking that writing is just going to be what they're putting physically on their page or on the screen, whereas they don't realize that how they choose to cut the tape they have or the sound effects they choose are all composing practices. And so for me, it was really fun, especially with my quieter students to see, oh my gosh, you cut that interview in such a way and added that cricket sound effect to compose something amazing that you probably didn't realize you were composed. I mean, you realized what you were doing, but you didn't realize that you were involved in an act of composition.
1: Still, here we are asking our brand new teachers to become familiar with an unknown genre. And in some cases, this meant listening to podcasts for the first time and then turning around and teaching the genre to first year writing students, whose questions of why are we doing a podcast in English comp often echo what our GTAs are quietly asking. A master of knowledge, or captain of the ship, as one of the GTAs puts it, doesn't really exist in our first year writing classrooms as teaching a podcast turns into figuring out a podcast alongside students. A student question like, how do I make a fade out in my track? Might be met with a, I don't know, or sometimes better, Google it, which is often not a new teacher's or anyone's ideal response to student inquiries.
2: We worried a lot. But we tried to remain undeterred. The podcast assignment is well-structured, carefully scaffolded, and however differently we might think about it now, we initially framed it as a means for better approaching writing with alphabetic text. And as we've said, we're flat convinced that teaching and learning in networked worlds necessitate a lack of control. When we engage in a networked world, as Colin Brooke and Thomas Rickert have said, quote, we too are transformed. Teaching and learning communication practices, writing, right now just won't slow down enough for mastery or control, if it ever did. And what this means for thinkers like Arroyo, though, and certainly for us, is that learning and teaching something as networked and as unwieldy as a story-driven podcast produces more possibilities for writing and more productive knowledge. We worry, yeah, and we just keep seeing and sensing the possibilities available to our GTAs when they do reach for control and find... Well, that they're left wanting.
4: I didn't really think I thought of it as a writing class,
2: necessarily.
6: Right. <laughs> you're gonna kill me for this. No, I'm not. Or they, or they didn't gain. <laughs> no, you're gonna get, like, they gained a sense of voice. And that means, you know, in the retcom world, it means hella, it means so many different things. But I guess, like, I value, like, the the creative process rather than the exploratory content I guess. Like Um, them
8: figuring stuff out for themselves. Yeah
6: and technical proficiency and even if the product sucks like pride because you had to like do something out of your comfort zone in terms of a technical process to get to that product.
1: Teaching a podcast gives rise to connections that we could not have planned for, could not have administrated for, could not control. In that way, what changes for us as writing program administrators is not so much what we're asking our GTAs to do in the classroom, and by extension the students, but far more so our understanding of what it is we're all doing in the classroom.
9: It can be really special to suddenly hear their voice and hear their senses of humor coming through when, to me, they've just been the person sitting in the back all quarter. It was pretty amazing just to sit in my living room and listen to them all just sharing their perspectives on various things was special.
0: And I love
6: when words pass through someone's body so that you have to physicalize the thoughts and you have to actually wrap your mouth around the sentence.
3: The podcast was just, like, cute and funny, and they had, like, banter like we have, and, like, they were just, like, they both picked, like, a similar place. It was awesome. And I was like, this could never have happened had I asked you guys to write about... Study zones on campus, and you wrote it down. Like I needed to have like Kimberly's giggle, and I had to have like Ashton like clearing his throat a bunch, and like I had to have them like give me their like stupid little nicknames, and having that kind of like interaction because it isn't like stuffy. It was just like a nice break from that.
1: Giggles, banter, throat clearing sounds really mattered in ways we just weren't ready for, particularly when it comes to assessment. Mm -hmm. We had rubrics and criteria ready to go. Evaluating the podcast, we both hoped, would require a decent learning curve, sure, but it wouldn't reduce our GTAs to tears.
6: Are all the
5: Don't time. Don't be mean. I was like, no, stay, like <laughs> sitting in my like
6: boxers and a t shirt, like with a stack of my uh, in uh, your my no no <laughs> I was I was at gonna Max. he's yeah. down the grade <laughs> at Mac's apartment. Like my, Otis, my dog is next to me, and like I got my headphones in, and Max comes in and is like, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "Yes, it's just <laughs> it's so beautiful."
1: Admissions like Tony's here, along with stuff like my students hate hearing their own voices and. It's such a performance, and it's so weird to grade these. Started to teach us something important about evaluation. It's visceral, embodied.
3: Paragraph, and like they indent a, a page, like a paragraph of a page. I assume they know what they're doing, but, like, I know they don't always think about that. It's like, oh, it's been six lines, I should probably indent. Whereas, like, when they have, like, sound, I know, like, they thought, like, this would be a sweet time to incorporate sound. I might have right. no idea why they thought it was a good option, probably is a horrible option, but they thought about that, and, like, they took the skills to do that. Versus, like, oh, I've written a, a paper so many times, like, this should be the title, because it's always just English 101 right. paper, two. Like... Yeah. There's yeah. less, like, thinking because it's become so methodical where the podcast is still, like, new and they're still, like, yeah, I Yeah, they're don't still
1: know. getting that. Assessment, and it seemed, to I me mean, we had giggles. You have, well, yeah, I like this. You did, it. You did this. So, yo, 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 I'm Swim Shady. Yeah. And you're a cuddle. Yeah. <laughs> it's <awesome>. <laughs> <laughs> We have this hunch that the assessment when you're sitting there, like, working on assessment, like, how am I going to evaluate this? When the voice is in your ear... In a sense, their whole body's there.
3: Like yeah, it's really embodied. It's kind of been.
6: Awesome. awesome.
3: It's easier yeah. to like give a shit when I can like. The I got a couple formal ones, and I was like, "This is this is a good job." Like, you did what I what I told you to do, but like the giggling, it just like, I can still hear her giggle, and it like, maybe wasn't necessary for the podcast, but like it made sense for her voice. Like, I wouldn't have thought about the library the same way had she not like made that little giggle, and like hearing that it just makes it more human and I can relate to the investigation more like I I'm just as invested as she is because like I yeah. can granted I know her but I feel like it, I maybe not would have cried at yours I don't cry a lot but <laughs> I, maybe yeah. I
6: all the time I'm you do, I, you I mean, do cry Jerry Maguire often. when it, like, the clip repeats on TV like, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I,
3: I would have also like oh, felt emotion <laughs> I listened to that same podcast <laughs> I wouldn't have, have teared out but like I think it's like a universal thing that just hearing someone's voices is a lot more than like reading it.
6: Right, and that's a that was a problem for me though because like yeah. it, like how embodied it is, like it removes all objectivity. Like yeah, I, I wanted just wanted think, to give like, everyone A's. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> just, because you tried and you're <laughs> no. like you're here and you're so brave. It's like here, just get you get a you exceptional in ex- a
3: car here. Right? here. <laughs>
6: So that was a that was a problem for me. Like I had I had a very difficult time attempting to be objective about assessment. because
8: you're just so blown away that they made a podcast.
6: I'm just so you're goddamn like, proud that exactly did right. that, that, that risk, that's a huge risk, even though I was like, you have to take this risk. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Like it was ah uh, that was that was I guess.
2: And in our conversation with Cindy self, she echoed a lot of what our GTAs discovered.
8: Oh yeah, that's a but that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That that these can these are these essays or these pieces are so affecting that they can make you weep, or they can make you, you know, pay attention, or they can make you feel vulnerable, or feel voyeuristic, or feel ways that feel things that you um, do not feel with written essays generally because those written essays have become so um, the uh, tropes and the mechanisms of those written essays have become so invisible uh, so familiar that they're invisible to you but because they're so invisible to you they're always already acting on your consciousness which is why your tas feel so um
2: and this is where the connection broke and we lost cindy's call But what she's saying here is something we didn't really account for despite all of the planning and obsessive worrying about issues that we knew would come up for our GTAs in terms of control in their classrooms. (laughs)
1: Yeah, we were obsessive.
2: (laughs) Totally. And I really do think the podcast assignment is as well-structured and carefully scaffolded as we could make it for brand new teachers. Mm -hmm. I think so too. But here's the thing. We never thought to say, at least not before the course started, get ready to be pretty vulnerable.
1: And I don't know why we weren't ready. Why we never said it? I mean, Peter Elbow in some of his foundational work clearly argues that the voice is produced by the body. Even when it comes to alphabetic texts, as silent as they seem, many readers project some sense of orality, some sense of intonation, rhythm, accent, and so forth. I mean, critique expressivism all you want, but it did generate a kind of newer, different excitement and anxiety. Composition teachers gotta hear from their students. They got to listen to them convey, or I guess express a person with a history and a body.
2: You mean read their students though? (laughs) Yeah, I do. But you're right. Expressivism did seem to draw all kinds of folks towards the relationships between writing and teaching. Uh, Yeah. And certainly assessment. Yeah, yeah. The expressivists in the 80s were grappling with how to evaluate, how to read personal writing, or writing that seemed to embody the student's true and authentic voice. Mm -hmm. So this tension regarding evaluation isn't new, but the voice in a podcast is nowhere near a metaphor. Elbow, of course, was talking about voice as physical, embodied, the podcast and the actual sound of student voices suddenly makes expression show up differently for us. Yeah,
1: that's what I'm saying.
2: Maybe we can call it a new expressivism.
1: <laughs> That'd be heaps better than a post-expressivism. We, we do, I think, have to be a little careful here. Elbow might go too far in thinking about the voice or sound as somehow more natural or primary than words on a page. Derrida helped us worry about the supremacy of the voice a long time ago.
2: Sure, sure. And the issue here is that it's hard not to see a normalized hearing speaking body in what Elbow says.
1: Well, I learned that really quick. A few graduate students and I had deaf or really hard of hearing students in our classes. What we had to do was rethink the kinds of bodies our assignment assumed. For the most part, this meant thinking more universally. And my student, for example, wrote a detailed podcast script that she annotated with emotional tone and images, stuff beyond alphabetic text. The GTA students did similar stuff.
2: It reminds me of what James Wilson and Cynthia Lewicki Wilson kind of warned us about in their book Embodied Rhetorics. Okay. Rhetoric, and I think this is more commonplace now, is closely aligned with the body and that rhetorical arguments of all kinds appear in embodied forms. So it's key that the voice is embodied, not metaphorical.
1: Elbow is onto something, I think. Actual voices are produced by actual bodies. I mean, he says, writing is really a voice spread out over time, not marks spread out in space. This was never clearer to me than when we had to think through ways to make this project as universal as possible.
2: In a podcast, writing speaks. Yep. It's then recorded and shared with others. And in other words, podcasts are grounded in the body and require expression of self and others. And this exposedness and vulnerability mediated through voice wasn't exactly what my first quarter freshmen were interested in.
7: <laughs> Podcasting doesn't really give you that opportunity.
2: Which not opportunity? As much
7: to, to, to be someone you're not. Because it's your, it's your literal voice. You know, it's not like voicing. It's your literal voice. And you have less to hide behind. Um, especially because people don't want to do multiple takes cause they just want to do it once and get <laughs> done with it, which is, which is nice. It's probably nice as the instructor too, because you get to go, Oh wait, like this is how they, this is how they really feel about this. And this is also, this is how their voice sounds when they're not in a public space, which is, you don't really get to hear that. You know, when, when your friends talk to you one-on-one in a private area and then they talk in a public classroom their l- literal voice sounds different that that's probably interesting to hear on podcasts i don't know that would, for me i would be totally interested in that
1: yeah there's a lot of that going on and i think you just put words to a feeling that i have all the
7: time <laughs> the, yeah intimate can you is there ever time when you're listening to a student and you're like whoa this is That doesn't even really sound like college.
2: Especially the student who doesn't talk in class. Oh, yeah. oh, my gosh, I haven't heard Corey all quarter, and here's seven minutes of his voice in my office.
7: Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah, and as an RA, I tell all my residents, go talk to your professors because when, especially if you're doing, um, what did you say, word-on-a-page writing, if you're doing essay writing for finals or exams of any sort, I think it's super important to talk to your professors so that they can hear your voice, kind of make distinctions about the way you talk so that they can read it in your voice when they're reading your paper because they can understand you better. You tell Yeah, oh yeah, because I think that's huge. And I was never told that and I think it's very important.
2: What I hear my students saying connects right back up to electricity. In electricity, the body and the voice is the very ground of composition. huh. And like I basically said earlier, and a little like elbow intuited, it's the site of rhetorical action. Analysis and abstract reasoning is, of course, widely important. Oh yeah, that's right. It's just that Arroyo, and Ulmer, and Brooke, and Shipka, (laughs) and Cindy Self, and so many others have noticed the values inherent in reason or something like analytic thinking that literacy requires are just not enough.
1: Hmm. Yeah, electricity names the multiplicity of meaning, supports intuition, imagination, emotion, and reaction in ways that are just not traditionally valued in university environments rooted in analytics.
2: I'm super convinced that no matter how analytic or distant our students tried to sound in their final podcasts, their physical voices disallowed our GTA's desire to distance themselves as evaluators. Right, They had their students' voices in their ears. Huh. It's not exactly possible to keep the object of analysis at arm's length because the object is being composed and spoken through the writer. Yeah. The students begin, no matter what, from their own subjective position and only then hook that into any objective history or topics.
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing and really challenging.
2: The work disallows an othering that essay writing might encourage.
1: That fact is what I think made evaluation so hard for GTAs.
2: It does. I saw my students become aware of their voice and their composition all at once. Hmm. Their position as the writing subject was showing up alongside or adjacent to their objects of study. One of my students even opened their podcast with, I have a confession to make. This little recorded line captured our class's attention in a way that the same line written in an essay might come across as awkward. Oh yeah. It also, and like so many of our GTAs pointed out, transformed the student's work into an embodied vulnerable experience, for me as an evaluator there the student was via my earbuds, seemingly standing in my office.
1: The act of recording our own voice, editing and manipulating that voice, and then sharing it with other writers and podcasters offers our students a chance to hear themselves, to offer themselves up to connections and networks of meaning, and then get themselves back, strangely.
2: So not only could my students not distance themselves from their writing, but I couldn't distance myself from my students' voices either.
7: Read a book and just scream. But when you're listening to a podcast, even if you don't say anything, you really feel provoked to say something verbally.
4: You know, they think they're not gaining writing skills that are practical. Not true. Um, And I've, from my class, my one class in the past, at least, I have seen that. They improve so much as writers after they're forced to write the podcast because you're forced, writing a podcast... To make relatable language.
0: I mean, I learned to listen to my voice, so that was nice. That was a cool thing to have to deal with, whether I wanted to or not.
7: And I think the podcast um, teaches what listening can mean.
4: I mean, I think because, like, just like uh, the same vulnerability you feel in a traditional writing class is amplified because it's your actual voice.
9: I feel, they feel so. It sounds stupid, but they feel so real to me when I hear them and I just think about the complexities of their lives. Just from their perspectives, I just, I'm like, oh, yes, being a freshman, you're talking about how confused you are right now or how much you're struggling or how homesick you are. And there's something about hearing them express all those different things in their voice that even though I'm not talking back to them, it just feels, there's something about it that feels a little more personal and a little more.
1: In her new stuff on what she, I think brilliantly, calls deep writing, Deborah Brandt offers me a new posture for learning, to think through this unwieldy work of writing. She says so simply that we now write to other writers. And the implications keep swirling around in my own writing and teaching, and certainly in the ways I approach program administration. Because here's the thing, Watching these students struggle through a podcast project showed me, more concretely anyway, that the distinction between an active writer creating for a well-behaved and passive reader no longer makes all that much sense. The podcast necessarily implies an active conversation partner, a reader who is actually a sort of writer who talks back, who shares the podcast so that it circulates and circulates and recirculates. I guess that this keeps showing me that we really do need, like Brant makes wonderfully clear, to honestly reconsider the networked conditions in which we teach writing.
2: It sounds really odd or seemingly obvious to say that our students are and have bodies in our classrooms, but the podcast project pushes me to be more aware of this, to pay better attention, and to listen differently than I might otherwise have. And while these podcasts are mediated through various programs, manipulated and edited, they're intimate. They draw out my students and demonstrate compelling examples of vulnerability. So for me, the technology shows up in ways that don't actually distance us from each other or ourselves. Rather, our tools or our glowing rectangles offer us new ways to deeply listen and relate to each other, to be embodied writers.
0: using the... F-
5: appreciating difficult
0: to do. Yeah. She, she took the words right out of me. Um I had I've done like some writing and filming and things but I did I wasn't really like in the broadcast world in high school. So it was definitely a challenge like tackle a new
5: all of these things, but it was super empowering also to be able to like guide the pod, like the podcast the way like we wanted it to, You're not, so not like, like, oh, we're following somebody else's track, we have to get somebody else's answer, you know, you have a piece of paper for a worksheet, and your professor, professor asks you a question, you have to answer it the right way, you don't get points, this was us getting points by finding our own answer to our own question, and so that was like a really, really rewarding experience,
8: but it was a really...
1: First, we want to thank a few non-humans that helped us along the way. We got plenty of support and even inventive inspiration for this podcast, from software like Adobe's Audition, Apple's GarageBand, Google Docs, and even Dropbox. We, we also would we be remiss, remiss not, not to, to, to
9: thank the, the little
2: room in. where so much of this happened. Humanities, Room 374, you're great. The music in this chapter comes from Sebastian and Lucius, and Mome. We, we also need, need to, to thank, thank Cindy Self,
1: who really got us going. We learn the most, of course, from our hardworking, risk-taking, crazy, fantastic GTAs. All of them. A huge thank you to Roberto Ascalon, Austin Van Kirk, Dana Patterson, Margaret Starry, Sarah Sarah
2: Appleton, Becky Burgesser, Tony Winkler, Rebecca Baker, Leanne Billmeyer, Jack Sykes, Rob Rich, and Rose Pettit. And thank you, thank you, to all our first-year writers. Thank you,
1: thank you to all our first-year writers.
8: I'm like